wow, a lot going on in this passage. Um, As I was meditating on this passage in Mark's gospel the last few weeks and asking the spirit what he might want us to hear this morning, I was so drawn into the story of the passage itself that rather than having kind of three points, I just want to share that journey with you. And and we're just going to walk through the narrative that Crystal just read. Um, But before we jump back into the story, uh, I want to propose that I believe the main question Mark intended for his listeners to be wrestling with as we, as we listen through this passage of his gospel is this, what is greatness? Or perhaps more provocatively, who is the greatest in the kingdom of God? Isn't that a question that maybe sometimes we, we find ourselves asking Uh, which begs another question, how do you measure greatness in the kingdom of God? How is greatness measured in the kingdom of God? What is greatness according to the world? What have I thought it meant to be great? What does, these are questions that this passage really, really causes us to, to confront and to, to ask, um, And what does Jesus show and tell us in this passage and in Mark's gospel as a whole about what it means to be great? And how is that different from the world's definition of greatness? So with that in mind, um, we'll jump into the gospel according to Mark. And um, so the story so far, two Sundays ago, we saw a major shift happen in Mark's account of the gospel when Peter confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, God's anointed king, one like David, who would reclaim the throne in Jerusalem, save and restore Israel, but who would take it even further than David ever could take it, who would take it further than than anyone had been able to take it and fulfill what Israel was always meant to be for the world, defeating her enemies and putting right everything that was wrong. So this was a huge moment, and it's at the very center of Mark's account of the gospel. Everything before that moment is leading up to the disciples' confession that Jesus is the Messiah, and everything after that moment is the unraveling and redefining of what that really means, that he is the Christ, the Messiah. And so there's this turn towards Jerusalem uh, that happened two weeks ago where these 12 followers of Jesus must have been full of anticipation. Kind of this, it's, it's finally happening. Could it be? If he's really the king we've been waiting for, then what's going to happen when we get to Jerusalem? Or as one commentator put it, surely the kingdom would break forth in Jerusalem with Jesus and we with him at its head. And here in this passage today, we see another clash between what they expected and what Jesus expected. Just like we've seen the last two weeks and like we will continue to see the entire rest of our journey through the gospel, according to Mark. So, So Mark 9, 30 through 32 begins with Jesus foretelling for a second time what is gonna happen when they get to their destination, Jerusalem. Said they went on from there and passed through Galilee And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, 
After three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. This, this statement, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. It's the second of three times we'll see in Mark's gospel that Jesus tells his disciples that rejection, suffering, and death are what await him when they get to Jerusalem. And for the second of three times, the disciples cannot even seem to comprehend what he is saying. It seems that there was this underlying assumption, which, which maybe if we're honest, we really can't judge them too harshly for holding, that messiahship, as one commentator put it, entails privilege, not suffering. The disciples appear to have held the assumption that messiahship entails privilege, not suffering. And in all three passion predictions, Jesus speaks of the necessity of his rejection, suffering, and death. And following all three of those times, the disciples voice their ambition for status and prestige. There's this expectation that if you're on the side of those with power, then you get status, prestige, and privilege, not suffering, not rejection, not death. Jesus was completely flipping that expectation on its head. And I thought if I, if I was able to make memes, I would have made a meme of this because I, I pictured it, my, the, <laughs> the, the modern uh, imagery is just default in my brain now. But it's like the disciples hear Jesus say this and they're like, but wait, we thought you were going to be crowned and enthroned as king when we get to, when we get to Jerusalem. And Jesus responds, yes, that's what I said. And the disciples, what do you do with that? <laughs> this image of Jesus being rejected, suffering, and being killed. That's not what's supposed to happen to a king, reclaiming the throne of David, conquering his enemies, setting the world to right. That's, that's the end of this whole Messiah movement that, you, that we're following you in, Jesus. What are you talking about? And so... Before we judge the disciples too quickly for their misunderstanding, can we not relate to how hard this is to comprehend? The way that Jesus was going, the way of the kingdom of God, led to a death first, but then to a resurrection. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. And this time, they were afraid to even ask him what he meant. Going on to Mark 9:33. <clears throat> so they came to Capernaum. Don't even ask, they don't even ask him <laughs> what he meant by it that time. They're just like, I, I don't even understand. So they come to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. One of the things that struck me about this, these, this passage was that how Jesus engages his disciples right where they are. He doesn't just look the other way or try to cover up what is happening or sweep it, or sweep it under the rug. And, and this, is, this is a really important point about the kind of king Jesus is. 
he does not say, well, their behavior is completely wrong and off and, and going in the, the wrong direction, but at least they're on the right side. No, he will have none of that. He will not compromise. But then on the other hand, he also doesn't just blast them or condemn them or shame them. He engages them with a question. What were you talking about on the way? Does that, does that remind you of anyone? If, you're, if you know the, the Bible story in the very beginning, the story of humanity begins with God saying to Adam, where are you? Jesus engages them with a question. And on the way, they had been arguing about who was the greatest. And they're silent when he asks them this question. Thinking about what had recently happened in Mark's gospel, it might not be too hard to imagine what that discussion could have been like. So just just take take into account these last couple of weeks, this last, even just this last chapter. So um, the transfiguration just happened where Peter, James, and John are with Jesus up on the mountain and see him transfigured. Well, obviously, we're, we were privy to this experience. Jesus, Jesus chose us three. Like, obviously, we're greater than the other nine of you. We were there. Or, or Peter maybe saying like, hey, I'm the one who confessed he was the Christ. Don't forget that, guys. You can, you can just, it's not that hard to imagine this argument. Um, or John responding to Peter, yeah, and you were also the one who he called Satan. And, and then there were the nine disciples who weren't with Jesus during his transfiguration, who couldn't cast out this unclean spirit from the boy that we just heard yesterday. You can possibly imagine the three badgering them about that like well if we would have been here maybe maybe we would have been able to do it but we were up on the mountain with Jesus so you know you guys this this argument about who is the greatest um, it's very believable in in the narrative and uh and they kept silent uh once once Jesus asked them what they were arguing about and so he sat them down he, or he sat down and called the 12, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. This phrase, he sat down, Jesus sat down. It's actually, um, I found studying this passage and, and reading some commentaries, this is actually a pretty unusual phrase for Mark. And it seems to indicate that what Jesus is about to say is a really big deal. It was a posture that a teacher took to, I'm going to sit down and you're going to listen to me here. And they need to hear it. And he says to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. You may have, many of you may have heard this, this saying, it's a very, very famous, well-known saying of Jesus. Um, and I, I want to pause for a second and just think about this statement, which was a response to the disciples arguing about who was the greatest. The more I sat with this statement, the more um, unsettling 
it became. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And I found a few things that kind of surprised me the more I sat with it too. First, that the desire to be great, Jesus doesn't condemn that. It's not bad. The desire to be great, that's, it, I think that's just in us as image bearers of God. We were made to be great and to desire greatness is not a bad thing. And so then I expected, well, Jesus would at least say maybe the desire to be greatest is bad, but he actually doesn't say that either. He says, if anyone would be first, he must. So he actually gives them an answer to the argument that they were having. Where he goes with this is not to condemn the disciples' desire to be great or even the greatest first. Instead, he goes after the way we measure greatness. And so it leads us back to this question that we asked right in the beginning. How do we measure greatness? And it's, it's, a, pers it's a very deeply personal question, I think, that Jesus is confronting his disciples with and that I think Mark wants to confront us with. How do I measure greatness? How have I been taught to measure greatness? What does greatness look like to me? Amazingly, some of the answers that might be coming to your minds might very well be what Jesus is teaching us here. I don't want to pretend this like, oh, we, we've got it all wrong. We, we don't know anything. Some of, some of our imagination <clears throat> has been formed by this story, by the events that happened 2,000 years ago with this completely unexpected king being killed for his enemies rather than killing his enemies, rising from the dead, saying he's come as a servant of all. Um, I would argue that it, because Jesus, what he has done has had such a profound impact and influence on our values and our imaginations uh, that after his resurrection, slowly but surely, this, this story really has redefined the ancient definition of greatness and the hero. The popular expectation we have today of a hero, a great one, think superheroes, Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, even, even I thought of Anne of Green Gables, like the, these people just like giving themselves for other people, the, the self-sacrificing her, hero, um, our conception, this was not the ancient world myths of the hero. They were about men who conquered, who used strength and power and position to lead people, to command people, to use people, to exalt themselves and build their kingdoms over and above everyone else. This was the ancient conception of greatness. And I think if, if when we ask that question, how do I measure greatness? To the extent that we thought about servant leadership or self-sacrifice or care and concern for, for others, I think it's because of what happened 2000 years ago and, and the profound impact that's had on the course of the world. Um, the Greek world generally considered service demeaning and undignified. A quote from Plato is how can a man be happy when he has to serve someone? 
In Jesus' teaching, to the contrary, the concept of service grows out of his concept of love for one's neighbor. Greatness in God's economy. This is a quote from, from one of the commentaries that, uh, that Ben Arnold hooked me up with that was super good. <laughs> Greatness in God's economy is not reserved for the gifted and privileged. Rather, it presents itself to every believer in the common and simple tasks of serving others. Here's where it gets crazy. Indeed, the more common and humble the task, the greater the deed. For humility is the essence of him who said, for I am among you as one who serves. This is what I'm saying. The more you sit with this statement, whoever would be first among you must be last of all and servant of all. It's really unsettling and really disorienting and hopefully in the end reorienting. But the, indeed the more common and humble the task, the greater the deed. This is, this is, this is uh, off the charts for the disciples. And I think off the charts for a lot of us sometimes as well. So, um, yeah, it's just, it's really not what you want to hear from someone you're expecting to ride in the city, ride into the city and overthrow the enemies. Or is it? The kingdom of God that Jesus was proclaiming would not be about establishing or maintaining the privilege of a few over and above the rest. It was about service to all. It was not about using your power to get others to serve you. It was about using your power to welcome and serve all. This is, this is how greatness works in the kingdom of God. So first Jesus gives this redefinition and an answer to the disciples question, argument about who is the greatest. But now he's gonna enact what he just told him. In Mark 9, 36, and he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Maybe I'm just thinking of this because of a year of Zoom. But I, I picture this, you know, like, kid running in maybe while jesus is having this big rabbi sit down talk with the disciples and saying one of the most profound statements that's going to reshape the course of history and then maybe this kid runs in and instead of jesus going like hey hey hey, i'm, I'm saying something important what are you doing here he wraps him up and takes him in his arms and says let me let me give you a picture of what i'm saying Perhaps more likely to the time, the kid was actually sitting off in a corner, out of sight, out of mind to the great people in the room, because he knew better than to disturb the great teacher and his great disciples. And then Jesus turns and reveals the child wasn't out of mind for him. And he welcomes the child into the center of the room and takes him in his arms. And I even wonder, this is total speculation here. But I, I even wonder, it, it says that when they came to Capernaum, they went to the house. Capernaum was kind of their home base. 
Peter healed, Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law in Capernaum. And I almost wondered like, what if that was Peter's son? But regardless, it's, he, he is thinking about this child. He pulls him into the center of the room. Here the disciples were all concerned about who among them is the greatest, perhaps arguing about who will hold what position of power once they get to Jerusalem and Jesus sets up his kingdom. And then Jesus welcomes a child into the center of attention. And we'll see as the passage moves forward that this isn't only about children. It's about all those that we perceive to be as little ones, maybe less than us. Uh, but honestly, I was really convicted and cut to the heart when I got to this point in the passage about children specifically. I want to pause there for a minute that Jesus isn't saying like he does in other places, look at this child as an example. He is saying, look at me as an example of what I'm telling you. Greatness looks like this. And, and I, I thought about like how often do I not have time for my kids because of more important things to do, more important people to talk to, more important work to be done? It, this can even be with church stuff. More, I've got a sermon to write. I've got a missional community meeting to lead. I've got uh, a crisis to, to intervene with that's more important. than I've got people to impress or just with adults in general. We may not ask it this bluntly, but I think there can often be this attitude of what do kids have to offer me? Probably nothing in terms of meeting your needs or helping you achieve worldly greatness, but that's Jesus' point. In God's kingdom, people are not welcomed or received based on what they can do for us. People are received because they are loved, because they're worth being seen, because they're worth taking up into our arms. And a question I think Jesus is confronting us with, he's confronting his disciples with and con confronting us with is how might your pursuit of greatness be making you miss the little ones right in front of you? I considered maybe making this point um, mostly about serving with Soma kids or, uh, and, and I think that is a point for us to consider, but I really think this is so much bigger than that. How do we welcome and receive our own kids in our own homes? How do we welcome and receive our kids' friends, especially the ones that are difficult or rude or hard to manage? How do we receive the kids in the neighborhood? And how do we treat and value and honor the kids in our entire church body when we gather in, in Soma kids, when, when our missional communities gather? And, and I want to... Clearly, there is a time and a place for adults to have time with just adults, as, as we see was frequently the case with Jesus, right? Jesus in his own life and, and his relationship with the disciples. He didn't pick a child as one of the 12. I think there's a practical reality that some kind, sometimes kids are just simply bored by what adults spend most of their times doing. And, but it still needs to be done, right? So this isn't a, this isn't a, let's, let's, Throw kids into everything. <laughs> um, I, I, it's not about being controlled by guilt to somehow include kids into everything. I think what this is really about is how do we really receive and make space for them in the first place? 
How do we welcome them as they are? How do we let them take up the space that they occupy and adjust around them, not just always try to make them adjust around us, which is easy to do when you're the one with power. I, I've lived a lot of my life trying to become someone great in school and church in my work and business in the community, even ironically, perhaps just like the disciples to become someone great for God. I've played right into this game and in playing that game, I know what it's like to completely miss kids right in front of me. And it's sad. And, and I want to, I want to pause again and just put a little pin in this that if you're feeling crushed with guilt or shame right now, um, I want to note that something I'm really learning in my own story is that you're taking, you're worth taking the time to be curious about why you act that way. You don't have to just condemn and hate yourself on the one hand or try to shame yourself into better behavior on the other. With, with just stop it, just try harder, just be better, you know? The, if you're feeling guilty or ashamed and find yourself going there, it's okay. Jesus can handle it. And there's really good news for people like us coming, but we still must hear this confrontation and correction. Uh, the kingdom of God that Jesus is announcing and introducing to the world is one that doesn't only have room for children, it welcomes them. And so now the scene that follows next might not seem connected at first. It didn't to me. Uh, but as we've seen uh, multiple times throughout this book, Mark is never just dropping random facts. He's a storyteller and he's weaving together events, retelling them in such a way to tell his readers something. So we're gonna continue following the story here, see if we can find connections Mark may be making. So Mark 9, 38, after, picture this scene, Jesus has a child, he just said this really big thing. And now John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. I've been trying to imagine how this scene looked and the only thing I can come up with is painfully awkward. <laughs> so Jesus had just told them about how welcoming a child is welcoming him and the very presence of the kingdom of God and God himself. And then apparently John, who Mark bothers to call out by name at this point, <laughs> says, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Not only is it interesting to note that John said they were trying to stop someone who was apparently trying to do something really good that could save someone's life, casting out a demon. And not only is it interesting to note that the disciples were trying to stop someone from doing what they themselves could not do like 20 verses ago, but it's also interesting to note why John says they tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who's not against us is for us. 
For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. The argument of, uh, among themselves about which individual was the greatest, we now see had also expanded out into which group is the greatest, who is really in with Jesus and who isn't. Jesus' reply to John is like dropping a bomb on every form of elitist, divisive tribalism that was already happening among his followers. And it may as well be a bomb that needs to be dropped on every form of exclusionary, divisive tribalism that's happening among his followers today. Do not stop him, is what Jesus says. First, Jesus probably shocked them with this response, showing himself to be more inclusive and broad-minded than his own disciples. And, but the, the crazy thing is that at this point, apparently nobody understood exactly what it meant to follow Jesus or what it really meant for him to be the Christ, including the 12. They didn't even get it. Remember the red decoder message Dawson preached two weeks ago? I see men, but they look like trees walking around. There's this partial reveal. They, they seize the Christ, but they still don't get it. And now they are assuming the position of judging who really gets it and who doesn't. Who's allowed to do mighty works in the name of Jesus and who is not? Who's a legit follower of the Messiah and who isn't? Who's in with Jesus and who's out with Jesus? And I think it betrays just how highly they thought of themselves and just how deeply out of step they were with Jesus and the new kingdom he was bringing. And if that's not enough, then Jesus takes it further. <laughs> For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to the Christ will by no means lose his reward. It appears that John and the disciples were trying to get Jesus on board with taking away the reward of this person who is doing in Jesus name what they themselves were just unable to do like 20 verses ago. We're on the inside. They need to come through us. And their thirst for greatness and to be first, they were seeking to put another one of Jesus' followers down to exclude, ostracize, and invalidate him. And Jesus will have none of it. He goes on to say, it, it, just, it just keeps, you think he's done, and he just keeps going. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. You can cut the tension with a knife. And if Jesus was looking John in the eye when he said that, that's pretty intense. A millstone tied around your neck in ancient world, these were big, big stones. And the sea was a really scary place in the ancient world. And even though I've heard this passage many times, as some of you may have also, I never realized until these last few weeks that when Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin or to stumble, he's not talking specifically just about children anymore. He's responding to John and he's talking about the unnamed, unaffiliated disciple who wasn't part of their group that was put down by John. 
And by implication, I think Jesus is really talking about anyone trying to follow him who's not part of our Christian circle, our church, our denomination, our tradition, our group, however we structure that, however we label it, however we slice it. If our elitist, divisive, tribalistic behavior toward those we see as less than us in the faith causes them to stumble in following Jesus, he's calling us to repent or to face judgment. You can almost see John just like squirming in his chair at this point or squirming on his feet because Jesus was sitting down. Um, and then Jesus takes it another step further and he turns it inward with the disciples themselves again. And this really, uh, what on the surface seems to be a jarring and like uncomfortable passage. So Mark 9, 43 through 49. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves. Be at peace with one another. Taken out of context, it, it appears that Jesus might simply be giving this really intense call to do whatever you got to do to prevent yourself from sinning. But I think when we consider the meaning of two particular words Jesus uses in this passage and the narrative of this section as a whole, that what Jesus was, uh, was talking about here, um, I want to offer an alternative on, on that. So that refrain that's repeated three times, cause you to sin, your hand causes you to sin, your foot causes you to sin, your eye causes you to sin. Uh, it could be translated as cause you to sin, cause you to stumble, cause you to fall away or offend. And it's actually used that, that word, my, my tiny itsy bits of Greek, <laughs> Greek knowledge. I looked at it and was like, where's that? What does that mean? And where else is it? It's actually at multiple places throughout Mark's gospel, and it's translated in each of those different ways, uh, in each of those different parts in a, in a different way. But it's all around this same kind of circular concept. Um, it's not just, uh, it, it's missing it. It's falling away, missing what's, what's happening right there. And I think what Jesus is talking about is ultimately, if anything causes you to miss the kingdom, to miss Jesus, to miss what's happening right in front of you. It's not worth it. It's better to lose it and not miss this than to miss this and keep what you've got. This is consistent with his parables about the kingdom. Sell everything you have to buy the field with the treasure, right? It's consistent with his call one chapter ago, right after Peter's confession, that Jesus is the Christ, lose your life for me and for the gospel and you will find it. But if you try to save your life, you're gonna lose it. And the crazy thing is, he uses this same word translated 
as cause you to sin, cause you to stumble, cause you to fall away, on the night that he'll be betrayed, saying, all of you will fall away. To which Peter replies, even if the rest do, I will never fall away. And they all do. Every one of them. Jesus knows what is coming. He knows who they are seeing this whole kingdom thing. He, he knows how they are seeing this whole kingdom thing panning out and how they're expecting to make it happen and where they're headed. If we take the eyes, hands, and feet as metaphors for what the disciples are seeing, what they're doing, and where they're going, then we can see this as a very specific and severe warning to them. Your vision of the kingdom your misguided conceptions about greatness, it's not worth it. It's better to let all of that go and listen to me than to hold on to that and lose everything in the end. Better to lose everything now and follow me than try to hold on to everything and end up losing it all. And regarding that phrase thrown into hell, the Greek word translated as hell is Gehenna, which refers to an actual physical place called the Valley of Hinnom to the southwest of Jerusalem or southeast of Jerusalem. Nope, southwest, had it right. Um, and it, it was a time uh, in, the, in the time of the wicked kings Ahaz and Manasseh in Israel's history, child sacrifice had been practiced there. And that place under the reign of King Josiah, the altars were torn down and the place was desecrated i.e. turned into a garbage dump. The Hinnom Valley, Gehenna, became a symbol of judgment in the prophets following that and in, and in Judaism. And here Jesus picks this up and applies its disturbing imagery. He it calls up the history of that place and it calls up the judgment that came on that place and applies it as a disturbing warning to all who reject and find themselves in opposition to the kingdom of God that's coming to put everything right. I think what Jesus is saying is all connected here, that if you count your life, your own pursuit of greatness as an individual or as a group at the expense of other people or other groups, in the end, you will lose it all. You will find yourself on the outside. You will find yourself and your group to be of no use to the kingdom at all, fit to be thrown out into the garbage heap. If the salt has lost its saltiness, what good is it? Once again, if this hard word from Jesus has left you feeling guilty or ashamed right now, I want to encourage you not to run from it, but to listen to it and then run to Jesus because he can handle it. Remember, he's saying this to the disciples who all fall away, who all take the bait. They don't get it until after the resurrection. That's, that's the tension of Mark's whole gospel here. And so, as I promised earlier, though we must hear this confrontation and, cor and correction from Jesus, there's really good news for people like us. I think... A lot of times we're competing with others and each other rather than receiving one another and others because we're deeply insecure about our own worth and whether we will be received. 
for many of us, the, those roots of insecurity go really deep. Experiences of neglect, of abandonment, trauma as children ourselves, unhealed wounds still stinging from the pain of rejection. But here in Jesus, in the Christ, the Messiah, the great one, we find something refreshingly and completely unexpected from a king like that. We find the king who stoops down, takes us in his arms and sees us. He pulls us in the center and says, do you see this person, my child? He receives us. He welcomes us. This is in fact the very thing we see Jesus doing with his disciples the entire way through the gospel. He's not ashamed of them. He sticks with them. He embraces them. He pursues them. He receives them. He welcomes them. He shows us, Jesus shows us what true greatness looks like. And he welcomes us. And in welcoming us, he welcomes us if we will receive him to become great with him. He shows us what true greatness must look like if it's going to stop tearing the world apart. And the challenge to us is will we let him receive us as we are and will we receive him as he is? Will we stop trying to make ourselves different so that we are receivable by him and just accept that he receives us as we are? And will we receive him as he is? Not try to edit him or censor things that he says or make it more palatable. Just receive him as he is. Will we? Will we receive a kingdom that has a death before a resurrection, that has service as the measure of greatness, that, has, that welcomes small things and small people ahead of big things and big people? I see in this passage a challenge and a promise that if we'll receive him and allow ourselves to be received by him, we will enter life. We will enter the kingdom of God and we will find the way of Jesus and become truly great. We will become those who welcome and receive little ones right in front of us. Because when we receive Jesus and his message, we are receiving not just him, but the very kingdom of God and God himself. That's what Jesus said. And in him, we will find the way to be at peace with one another. Jesus' final word that, that proved to me, oh my gosh, this is a full circle, compact story here. He ends with be at peace with one another. This is the way we find. The only way that seems to work to truly be at peace with one another. Though it may not happen all at once, if we will receive him and be received by him, he will transform us and our personal and societal ranking and value system, and he will heal all our wounds and insecurities that keep us in a place of using and abusing one another in a desperate effort to attain this greatness that we actually already possessed the moment God welcomed us into his beautiful story in the first place. So I want to close with just that Jesus, Jesus receives children. Jesus receives those with little faith and little power. Jesus receives his hard-hearted and misguided disciples. 
Jesus receives us.